Um, If you would, turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 15. Uh, Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to begin by reading uh, the 21 verses here that we find in Genesis 15. So if you'd follow along with me there, uh, beginning in verse 1. It says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Catamanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, we need uh, your help this morning as we come before your holy and perfect word. Lord, would you give us uh, clear eyes to see and understand the truth that is before us? Uh, Would you help us to rightly understand what is here, Lord, and that we would come away uh, knowing better who you are, what you have done, and what you have promised to do, and that we would live for you in this world? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable before you. And it's in your son's holy name I pray. Amen. Uh, our, uh, and this is a hard word for me to pronounce here. Arachibutyrophobia is the fear of peanut butter. Kionophobia <laughs> is the fear of snow. Papyrophobia is the fear of paper. Uh, Growing up, the only phobia I knew was arachnophobia. I think there was a movie in the 90s titled that, so I knew that was the fear of spiders. Uh, You don't have to look hard in studying the different phobias that we have 
as humans to understand our frailty, our weakness, and our brokenness, our proneness to fear. We are fearful people. We come into this place this morning, each of us bearing different types of fear and concern and doubt, some of you more than others. We have all faced fear, and we will continue to face moments and seasons of fear throughout this life. The text we come to this morning, though, in Genesis chapter 15, teaches us that amid fear, the Lord guarantees his promises will be fulfilled. We learn several things about fear here in chapter 15. The first one is that fear is real. The command that is used the most throughout the pages of Scripture is fear not. And the reason that God has to command us so often and so regularly not to fear is because, again, we are fearful people. We are prone to fear and doubt and concern. And so God comes to Abram a third time, and he speaks to him a third time here in the story of Genesis. And he comes to him, and he says to him for the very first time in Scripture the command, fear not. Why is it that God would need to tell Abram not to fear? Well, it is because Abram is struggling with fear. Why would God tell him this unless Abram was afraid? This is not the first time that Abram has struggled with fear. We saw earlier in chapter 12 when in the encounter in Egypt with Pharaoh that Abram has this, this scheme, this plot that he has to protect himself from Pharaoh, and it was rooted in fear. And so here we come to chapter 15, and apparently he has a fear problem again. What is it exactly that Abram is afraid of? Well, in order to understand this, to answer this question, we need to first consider what else it is that God says to him there in verse 1. God says to him, fear not, Abram, and he tells him two other things. First, I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. That first statement there, I am your shield, I am your protection, that word shield is a military term, which is quite fitting considering what we saw last week in chapter 14 in this great war that Abram gets swept away in. And there we see that it was God who delivered Abram's enemies into his hands. And so God tells him here, I am your shield, I am your protection. And so surely Abram has seen and he knows this full well. God has brought him out of his father's land into the promised land. God has delivered him from a famine in the land. God delivered him from the hand of Pharaoh. God delivered him from a conflict between Lot and the Canaanites and the Perizzites. God delivered him from the kings of the east. God delivered him into his hands, his nephew Lot. He has seen over and over and over again that God is most certainly his shield and protection. So surely that's not what Abram is afraid of. Notice what the next thing that God says to him, your reward shall be very great. What is the reward? What is it that has been promised to Abram? Namely, it is a son. God has promised that a great nation will come from Abram. And here lies the root of the problem for Abram. There's an issue that we have addressed already that we haven't really touched on for the past several chapters. But if you remember, at the end of chapter 11, there's an important detail that's given there in three simple words that comes to play into the story in these moments. It says, Sarai was barren. 
Abram's wife cannot and has not had a child. A lot has transpired since him. In fact, at the beginning of verse 1, it says, after these things. There's a lot of time that has gone between the battle and the war that took place in chapter 15 and, or chapter 14 and this point. And so the problem for Abram is that he has no son. And sure enough, this is the root of the fear. And we see it in verses 2 and 3 where Abram says, I do not have a son. He repeats it twice there in verses 2 and 3. And the repetition of these verses emphasizes the distress that Abram has. I mentioned this is the third time that God comes and speaks to Abram so far in the story. But this is also the first time that Abram responds to God. This is the first time that Abram speaks to God. And over and over again in Genesis, we see that when Abram speaks, it shows his doubt But when he's silent, we tend to see his obedience to God. As it stands for Abram, there's this one in his house who is the heir, Eleazar of Damascus. Now, there's some debate among scholars as exactly who Eleazar is and why Damascus is significant. But very simply here, Eleazar is one of his household servants. And it would have been appropriate in Abram's day that if he, for someone who did not have a child to adopt their servant to be the one who would inherit their wealth. And so Abram is distressed in the fact that the, the one who will receive his wealth is not one that has come from him. He has no son. But lest we think that he, he's okay with the, the first truth there, I am your shield, we come to find out later in verse 8 that Abram is also afraid that God will not give him the land. God tells him there in verse 7, I am the Lord your God who brought you up from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And then Abram says in verse 8, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How am I to know that you are my shield and my protection? And so we see here the father of the nation of Israel questioning and doubting God. Based on what Abram sees, he has little hope that God will remain faithful to the promise. He has no son and he has not taken possession of the land. Something else I want us to note for just a a moment here is how, God addre- how, how the writer speaks of God addressing Abram. Look back at verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Abram. These words are used in the Old Testament to point to one who is a prophet. And this will come to play later in the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 20, that he is a prophet of God. But why is it important to mention it here? Here we have Abram. He is a prophet of God. He is a man of God. He is the father of the promised nation. He has been obedient to the Lord. He has been a representation of, champion, of righteousness. He's been a champion of righteousness in the land. He is the one who has been walking by faith, and yet we are reminded that this hero of the faith is not perfect. He is afraid. He is doubting. He is questioning the promises of God based on the circumstances that surround him. And yet, he puts his faith in the Lord in the midst of this. Unfortunately, in our day, there is this perception of church, in particular from those who are outside of the church, non-Christians, but also, unfortunately, this sometimes manifests itself inside the church. There's this idea that the church is a place that is made for perfect people. 
that we show up here in our nice clothes and we put on a smile and we're supposed to make everyone think that our lives are perfect. And if we're honest, just five minutes before we got here in the car, we were yelling and screaming at our kids. I've said this before, the church is not a place for perfect people. The church is made up of people who are broken who are in desperate need of God's intervention on their behalf, and we find that hope in the cross of Christ, which we've celebrated this morning. We gather here today as broken, fearful, disobedient, dysfunctional people who rest under the banner of the gospel, who rest under the cross of Christ. Although Abram most certainly lacks trust in the text, and, and that, is, that is a driving force in this passage, he lacks trust in the Lord. In the midst of that, we see evidence of his faith in his complaint to the Lord. Why else would he remind God of the promise in his complaint if he didn't simply believe that the promise would come? We see this throughout the book of Psalms. If you've been joining us over the last many months on our Wednesday night prayer meeting where we've been walking through the Psalms, and, and most recently we've, we've moved that time to Sunday nights, and we've seen this over and over and over again in the Psalms. The writer comes to the Lord in distress, and he questions God, where are you? But in his complaint, he does so from a place of faith because he knows that the only one who can intervene on, the, on his behalf in the midst of his brokenness is God. And so there is something to take from this. There are seasons of doubt and uncertainty. Fear is real, dear friends, and this serves us better. This text teaches us that it serves us better to confess our doubts and our fears than rather to remain silent. To continue to be faithful to the Lord and his word and his church, even in the midst of our brokenness, knowing that he alone is the one who can and will and has delivered us. God wants us to humbly bring our fears and our doubts and our concerns and our circumstances and our sin before him. He wants us to confess these things before him. Psalm 55, verse 22, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. Philippians chapter 4 famously says this, do not be anxious, do not be fearful about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request, let your anxieties, your fears, your doubts be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We bring our fears and our doubts and our concerns before the Lord, admitting in humility we are broken and are in desperate need of him. Abram's doubts and fears, though, do not undermine his faith. We also see here that faith exceeds fear. Abram questions God twice in verses 2 and 3, so it's fitting that God responds twice to Abram's questions with promises. And he says to him very plainly in verses 4 and 5 that you will indeed have a son. He's very blunt and very straightforward in verse 4. Look what God says there in verse 4. This man shall not be your heir. He will not even acknowledge the name of Eleazar. It is blasphemous that Abraham has even suggested that this one from Damascus will be the heir. 
And then he goes on to say there in verse 4, Your very own son shall be your heir. The literal translation of that is this, He will come out of your loins. If that is not blunt and straightforward enough for Abram to understand what the promise is rooted in, God then goes on to illustrate the profoundness of this. And he does so in a way that he's already done with Abraham. In chapter 13, when Abram came into the promised land and God said to move about and count the sand and, and the dust that is there in the promised land and you're, the, the nation that will come from you will far outnumber the dust. Here he says, go and look at the heavens, Abraham. Look at the stars, count the stars, and the nation that will come from you will outnumber the stars. He says there, if you are able to even number them. It is fitting again in light of what we saw in chapter 14 where twice Melchizedek and Abraham call him the possessor of heaven and earth. That God then comes to Abraham and says, if you believe in the possessor of heaven and earth, look to the stars and see that I will be faithful to you. And then we come to verse 6. And verse 6 is probably the most important verse in all of Genesis, if not the entirety of the Bible. It says there in verse 6, Abram believed the Lord, and God counted it to Abram as righteousness. Abram was justified by faith. Abram believed in the promise, and he was made right before God. Now, this is important here, so follow me for just a moment. Grammatically, the words and, and, and the structure of verse 6 is meant to be read as background information. In other words, this is not a progression in the story. Abram did not necessarily come to faith here. In fact, in a moment when we go read Hebrews 11 about Abram, we see that his faith was evident at the beginning of the story when God called him to leave Ur and go to the promised land. And why is this significant? The writer wants to highlight here the belief of Abram and the righteousness that is imparted to him because of his belief to show us here that the covenant did not make Abram righteous. His righteousness came by faith, trust in the Lord, belief that God would accomplish what he said he would. And so this is a truth that we have highlighted throughout the first 15 chapters of Genesis, that faith is what justifies. Belief in the Lord is what makes us righteous before him. And we've seen this already in Hebrews chapter 11 and in characters of the story of Genesis and Abel and Enoch and Noah. I want us to turn to Hebrews 11 again to see this in regards to Abram. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hold your place there in Genesis. We'll come back to it. But I, I want us to see here the profoundness of Abram's faith. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8. Again, just as we saw this with Abel, and we saw this with Enoch, and we saw this with Noah, here again we see it with Abram. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 8, or, sorry, chapter 11, verse 8 says this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him to the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so just as these saints of the Old Testament looked forward to a Messiah to come, they looked forward to a seed who was to come, they looked forward to the promised one, we too today look back to a Messiah who has already come and conquered sin and death 
And we are made righteous. We are made acceptable before God. We are put in right standing before God simply by believing in the seed. By believing in the promised one. By believing in Christ. Dear friends, the only way to be made right before a holy God is to believe by faith in the Son. In in spite of Abram's fear and doubt and the circumstances that surrounded him, he believed God would bring the promise. And so whatever circumstances you bring into this place this morning, whatever fear surrounds you today, Maybe it's fear of of job loss, or maybe it's fear of the, the future for your children. Maybe it is fear of a diagnosis that has been given to you by a doctor in recent days, that your days here are numbered. Dear friend, believe that the promise has come. Believe that Christ has conquered sin and death once and for all. And what God spoke of here has come to fruition in the blood of Christ. Our hope today does not rest in our circumstances. Our hope today does not rest in the things that surround us. It is in Christ. Trust in the promise. Believe the promise. We also, though, in looking at chapter 15, need to view fear by God's word or through the lens of God's word. We see here that God's word opposes fear. As we read through this and and there's this dialogue between God and Abraham, God reassures him with words that are sure. First, he reaffirms the promise with Abram. Then there in verse 7, look what God says. He says, I am the Lord. That is the name of God. He says, I am Yahweh. I am the one true living God. I am the one that you worship as the possessor of heaven and earth. I am God most high. He reminds Abram of who he is, but then he also reminds him of what he has done. He goes on to say there in verse 7, I brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. God has delivered him to the promised land just as he said he would. And so, Something really important that we need to see here in verse 7 is that the words that are used in verse 7 are the exact same words that are used in Exodus chapter 20 when God makes his covenant there at Sinai with Moses and the people. There in Exodus chapter 20, God says the very same words. He says, I am the Lord who brought you out from Egypt. And so as we come to this passage, we need to understand that there is a direct correlation between the covenants of God and the faithfulness of God. The covenant that was made in the garden, the covenant that was made with Noah, the covenant that's made here with Abram, the covenant that's made with Isaac and Jacob, and and, and the covenant that's made with Moses and the people, and the covenant that's made with David all declare that God is faithful. Strangely, Abram... Here comes to this point in verse 12 where he, he has this dreadful uh, moment of sleep. It, it, there's this great darkness that fell upon him. It's an anxiety-driven dream. Maybe uh, it, it's, a, it's a divine dream, and he gets a vision of the people in bondage in Egypt. We don't know for sure. But then notice what God says to him in verse 13. He says, no for certain. So we might think at this point, because the pattern has been this, that God is going to, again, reassure him of the promise. But interestingly, God goes on to tell him that the people 
of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, are going to be taken into bondage and serve as slaves in Egypt. And that they will then eventually be delivered and brought back to the promised land. God also tells Abram there that he's going to live a long life. You shall be buried in a good old age. This is not the norm, church, for God to give us such specific details about our future. Nor should we expect God to speak to us in such a way. And yet God does in his word. We look no further than the book of Revelation where God has given us an entire book of things that have yet to come. So why is it that God would make these things known to Abram here? You're going to be buried in a good old age, Abram. I wish God would tell me that. That'd be nice, right? To hear in a dream one night. Don't worry, Nathan. Someday you're going to be rocking on that rocking chair on the front of your porch. You're going to die in a good old age. Is it just there as some sort of, of, of comical way to, for God to communicate with Abram to hold a carrot out in front of him? No. What we see here is, is a word of prophecy that comes to Abram, who is, again, this prophet of God. Prophecy, too, allows us to see the faithfulness of God. The covenants of God show us his faithfulness. Prophecy shows us his faithfulness, that it, his word is sure. His word is certain. And so consider this, the original audience who read this, as Moses wrote this out in the original audience, they read this. Where did they read this from? What perspective? On the other side of deliverance from Egypt. And so when they read this, they stand in awe of the fact that God told Abram that he would bring about their deliverance from Egypt. And the people of Israel, as they read those words, they stand in awe of the faithfulness of God. This is prophecy from the prophet Abram. These sure words from God are a remedy to our fear. There's a lot of fear in our day, and, and I think we, we kind of saw that elevated during the pandemic. And I'll never forget this. I, I had to write this down. This was a couple years ago. There was a, a therapist, a secular therapist, who was being interviewed on some news media outlet. I can't remember what it was. And the question was presented to the therapist, what are you, you telling your clients in the midst of all this fear, how are we supposed to handle fear? And, and listen to what the therapist said, and, and I, I'm not joking. The therapist said this, I tell my patients to visualize their negative thoughts and be kind to them. I'm glad you chuckle a little bit because that statement is most certainly absurd. And, and so the point of that, of that quote is twofold. First, we, we see the absurdity of the thoughts of men, but we're also reminded here that when we try to solve the problem of sin and the problem of fear and the problem of doubt in and of ourselves, we will always fall short. We cannot seek the wise counsel of men alone. The thoughts and ideas and, and, and the ways of men will fail us, but dear friends, there is a word that is better. There is a word that is certain. There is a word that is sure. And it is the word of God. In the midst of fear and doubt and uncertainty, we need to turn nowhere else but the pages of Scripture and trust in the certainty of the word. That we would read it and meditate on it and swim in it. That we would pursue it all of our days because it 
opposes fear. It is sure. It is certain. It is true. As we come to a close, though, the most important thing that we can come to realize from this passage is that God's promises triumph over fear. At the heart of this story, we have the installment of the covenant. So the the covenant has been mentioned earlier uh, in, in, in the story of Genesis back there in chapter 12. You remember in verses 1 through 3, and it's been brought up throughout the past several chapters. But here it is installed and the installment of the, uh, of the covenant happens through a really strange event. It happens through something that, that, that seems quite odd to us. You see it first there, where God tells Abram to kill some animals and to lay, lay their carcasses in two lines and create a pathway down the middle. Again, this sounds strange, and, and there is some debate among theologians as exactly what we see here. But I believe what we see here is a custom That was there in Abram's day where if two people wanted to make a covenant, a promise with each other, they would do this. They would kill these animals, they would lay a pathway, and then together the two of them would walk down the center of the pathway, essentially saying to one another, if we break the covenant, if I break the covenant, may my fate be that of the carcass. It it was a, a sign of the promise, the covenant that they had made with each other. And so when Abram questions the promise when he says there in verse 8, how am I to know that I shall possess the land? And then God tells him to create this pathway with the meat. Potentially, Abram thinks that God is then going to ask him to walk with him through the pathway to establish the covenant. But this is not what happens. Jump down to verse 17 to something else that is quite strange in the story. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down, and it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. Throughout the Old Testament, smoke and flame represent the manifestation of the Lord, the Lord's presence. And so this smoking fire pot and this flaming torch are a visible manifestation of the Lord. And he alone passes between the animal parts, these carcasses. You see, God takes upon himself the covenant curse if he does not keep his promise to Abram. Again, this is the official inauguration of the covenant, and God is taking complete obligation of the promise upon himself. God knowing full well that in our sin we will be led to doubt and fear and failure and disobedience. And we see that manifested to us in Abram. In knowing this full well, God then shows that he alone will keep the covenant. He alone will be the one who brings about the promise. He must take the initiative. He must be the one to intervene on our behalf. And we see this at the cross of Christ, where Christ ratifies the new covenant by his blood. And and so we are reminded that there is nothing that we can bring before a holy God to appeal to him in and of ourselves. 
No ceremony, no ritual, no meat on a ground and walking between the meat. No list of sins that we have not done. No list of good things that we have done. No reciting of scripture. No memorization of scripture. No perfect church attendance can appeal to the holiness of God on our behalf. God must intervene for us. Christ must intervene on our behalf, and he has at the cross. And it is only at the cross that we can find freedom from fear and sin and death. Again, we all have fear. Some of you here this morning are afraid of peanut butter, apparently. Some of you are afraid of snow. Some of you are afraid of spiders. But throughout all of human history, there has been one fear that has been shared by everyone who has ever walked on the face of this earth, and that is fear of the grave. Death is coming. And yet we rejoice in the fact today that death is swallowed up in victory at the cross. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Dear brother and sister in Christ, those of you who possess saving faith in Jesus this morning and have repented and turned from your sins, if you are a true Christian today, there is no more fear in death because Christ has conquered sin and death once and for all. Rest in that today and all your days. I want to close, though, by reading one verse. You don't have to turn there with me, but I want you to hear the words of Jesus as we close. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said this, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He goes on to say this, Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body. There is one thing that we should fear. And it is the wrath and judgment of a holy and righteous God on dreadful sinners like you and I. And if you are here today and you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus, know that hell is the eternity that you are set for. But know this too, that Christ has conquered sin and death. And if you believe in him alone for salvation, you will find righteousness imparted to you that is not your own. You will be put in good standing before this holy, righteous judge, and you will be with him forever in eternity. Believe in Jesus today. Look to the cross of Christ today. Look to the empty tomb. Know of this God-man who came near to us and lived a sinless life, died on a cross, rose from the grave, and ascended into heaven, and he's coming again. Believe in him today. There's nothing that you can bring, no amount of good works, no amount of effort, no amount of good positive thinking and and telling your evil thoughts to be your friend. Those things will not save you, dear one. Look to Jesus today in faith and repentance. Let's pray.